So here we are, and we have reached the last story in the Gates short story collection. Sorry it's come round so quickly, but life's a bit like that, isn't it? This is called The Unrecognised. All stories are love stories. Some are just badly told or badly lived. He hadn't always been fat. He wasn't fat anymore. He'd just spent a whole lifetime imagining. He was. Always. Every minute of every day. Even when he could see his ribs in the mirror every morning when he shaved. Even when his wife told him he wasn't fat. He hadn't heard a voice for an age. Ten years, three months, five days, six hours, ten minutes and thirty-five seconds to be precise. He liked precision deep down, although everyone around him thought he was chaotic and impulsive. The wrinkles in his face were deep now, unwanted old age carving unwanted pictures into his skin. He'd never yearned for old age, not on his own, had always expected to die before her, because she was eight years younger than him. He managed to smile at the face looking out at him, his father's face. He hadn't expected to live this long after she'd gone either, had never anticipated that the strength his body would have. Even when she'd been alive, even when they were relatively young and their children still dependent on them, he'd thought, he'd known with absolute certainty that he would never be able to survive without her. And here he was, almost ninety, still smoking, still breathing, still lonely, still fat. Two days of grey beard gave him a rakish look, he supposed. Perhaps that's what kept him alive, this unquenchable thirst to see himself in a better light than he could, the hope that one day, for just one day, he'd be able to accept himself as he was, see himself as he really was. Looked out from the outside, he was a wiry man now, not a spare ounce of food on him, nothing that shook and shivered when he jumped up and down, everything as taut as straining cable. Everyone could see it, except him. He closed his eyes and took a deep breath. I know you can see me, he said. I wish I could see you. The bedroom was the same as the day he'd woken up to find her next to him, lifeless, with the smile of sleep on her rigid face. Her nightshirt was still there, carelessly crushed into a shapeless heap on her pillow. He'd changed the sheets uncounted times, of course, but not the pillow cover, not the nightshirt, always carrying it like fragile papyrus across to the chest of drawers while he did his domestic chores, careful to wash everything with the same detergent she'd used and the same fabric conditioner. That way, everything smelled the same as it always had when she was alive. Now he sat down on the bed next to the shirt, bent to take a breath of what was left of her scent, and stared out of the window down into the village street. His friend opposite had died two or three years ago, the one who'd lived in this house until he was nineteen. He shrugged. We should have been enjoying this, he said, the nightshirt now in his hands, drooping like a sleeping baby across his forearms. Just you and me together, one last long evening. There was a bitterness in his whisper, so much for faith. He put the fabric back into its place and stood up. There was an irony in his ease of movement. In his fifties, he'd often struggled with his bad back. The radio started blaring out a tune he didn't recognise. He put his shirt on in time to the music. He always liked new bands, new songs, the louder the better, the more political the better, songs of the human condition. He looked into the wardrobe mirror. Her clothes were still behind its door. 
The children had tried to persuade him to throw them away or to share them out amongst them and his grandchildren, but he refused. When I'm gone, he said, then the boys and girls can choose what they want to keep and what not. There'd been no contradiction. They were all still afraid of him, he supposed, although they knew really that he was the softest man of all men, the softest of all people, even softer than she'd been. Downstairs, the spring sun had already warmed the kitchen. It was odd every morning, unerringly, not to have to watch his words, not to have to pander to someone who was bad in the mornings. He enjoyed it, to be able to say what he wanted, do what he wanted, without being hit with a warning look or a sharp word, or forced to skirt around difficult issues he always thought honesty could have solved in an instance. But the emptiness was more difficult to cope with than the silence he filled by turning on yet another radio. The round wood table was scratched and worn. He didn't polish it like she had, didn't even attempt to make it look like new. He just lived with it, and he wanted every wrinkle in his life to be reflected in every one of its scratches. When their children and grandchildren came to visit, he didn't stop them from drawing on the table. That's what it's for, he'd say. It's, it's just a thicker version of paper. His children shook their heads. You never said that to us. That's because I was scared of your mother, he said. She always wanted everything just so perfect. The pigmentation on his hands irritated him. They were old man's hands and he hated that. Even though they were still strong, they were old and looked old. He laid his hands flat on the table in front of him, and the warmth and strength of the pine rose up into him through his palms. What shall we do today? He, cooked his, he cocked his head as if listening. I could go for a walk, he said, or I could just stay here and make that list I've been promising myself to make for years. The only change he'd made to the kitchen was to hang a photograph of her up on the blackboard wall she'd made all those decades ago. There was still chalk writing on it, right at the top, from when their oldest had gone to university. A poem about a man chasing the horizon and never catching it. The white was wearing a bit thin now and was irrelevant anyway. The boy had caught his horizon and so had the girls. The important thing was the photo. Her eyes followed him everywhere and the tightness of her body reminded him of his own youth, of when he first met her of all the doubting years between then and when she'd gone and the question he'd asked himself every day. Why, of all the women he'd loved, had he loved her the best, the longest, the fiercest? You're the only person I want to be with when I die, he told her when he asked her to marry her. Was that reason enough? And that's not what had happened anyway. Who would he die with now? Alone, probably. The coffee in the tiny cup was still warm. He'd started drinking coffee again when all the children had left home, after he'd been without for twenty years. He'd started buying proper coffee, not the instant muck that had made him so ill he thought he'd die. He raised the cup to the photograph, met her eyes. Unadulterated pumpkin, black, no sugar, the way it's supposed to be drunk. He told her every morning. A meow sharp over the noise of the radio brought him to his feet. You're just like all the others, he said to the fourth Florence he'd looked after, a tiny black cat just like all her predecessors. You should learn to use the cat flap. I'm tired of clearing up your shit every day. The cat stroked herself against his legs, meowed again, and sat down, tail lashing impatiently on the limestone tiles. Go on then, he said, took the keys from their rack, opened one half of the French windows out onto the decking, 
and hooked it into place. There you are. Go and have some fun. He stepped out and the cat followed him. He rummaged in his trouser pockets for his pre-rolled cigarettes and his lighter, moved one of the wooden chairs to be, to, to be pedantically straight in line with the sun, and sat down. The first taste of smoke every morning was still one of his unalloyed pleasures, and he was proud of the fact that he hadn't started to smoke in the house, even after he'd become a widower. He listened to the birds, the creaking of the trees, watched the silver birch sway in the slight breeze, the tree she'd planted all those years ago, grown from a tender, fragile sapling threatened by bugs and grass and weeds, to the tall, slender shelter from the summer sun. It now was. If he'd see the summer, that was. Her freckles were what he'd noticed first about her when he met her. They were all over her face and her arms and her hands. And when she'd put that tree in, when she'd found those bugs on its leaves, those freckles had been as beautiful as ever, and he'd watched her long fingers shoo away the vermin, flick it from leaves and stem, the veins strident with life and love. It could have been yesterday for all the clarity of the pictures he saw in his mind, but it wasn't. The cat was busy in the bushes, scaring herself and the birds and whatever other wildlife was hiding in there. He put out his cigarette, dropped the butt into the clay pot, ashtray, and wandered back inside. List, he said. You need to sort it out. It's not being unfaithful. It's just being organised before you die. He sat down with a sigh. Just be a rationalist for once. He pulled the pad of paper from her place into his. You never did make a list of yours, he said. I know you always thought it was unnecessary and stupid that we shouldn't look at the past and compare, but then you were always sure of yourself and me. I never was. At the top of the word, at the top of the pad was the word list, and a date from five years earlier. This was another one of his early morning rituals, but today he was determined to make a start, or even to finish. Maybe the memories of those he'd loved before her would stop the memories of her hurting quite so much, or maybe not, and then I'll go for a walk, or a run. The pen found its way into his hand. He drew a line down the centre of the blank paper and then a line across just below the beginning of the vertical line. Now he had two columns. He wrote in the left-hand side sex and no sex in the right-hand column. That's a good start, isn't it? He said to her photo. Oh, don't be so disapproving. You're top of all the lists I ever made anyway. The others never had a chance even before I met you. Because you had to be there somewhere waiting for me, didn't you? That's what it was all about, me looking for you and being lucky enough to find you. He blew a kiss at the colours she was. I miss touching you. In all ways. The phone rang. Yes. The voice got his name wrong, so he corrected it. The voice was smooth, young, male, tried to be chummy. He shook his head. I'm not interested, he said. I know you're only doing your job, but no thanks. He pressed the red button and put the phone back in its cradle gently. Idiots. Another tiny cup of coffee later, he went back to the unstarted list. A framework, at least, he said to himself. He looked up at her. I should finish today, should I? Do you know something I don't? He laughed. That would be good. The pad didn't seem right when he looked at it again. Hang on, I've had an idea. He drew another column on the very right and wrote at the top, Miss Red. It's the ones where I didn't read the signals right, the ones I might have had a chance with. History tells us such things. He put the pen down. No, it doesn't mean I'd have done anything differently. 
carefully. He picked the pen up again and looked at it. Strange things, pens. And then he put the first name in the middle column, which had been the right-hand column, the no-sex column. Natalie. That was something. What could he remember about her? He'd met her at a party when he was in the sixth form. She was a third former in the locked kitchen, trying to slash her wrist with a blunt knife. He talked her out of it, put her into a taxi home, and that got so drunk he couldn't find the lock when he'd got home. His mother let him in at four in the morning. A few days later, Natalie had slipped on ice in the playground, and he'd rescued her, and they'd started going out. Well, mm, sort of. He walked her halfway home most days, and then she disappeared as fast as she could. It was almost six months later when he'd finally managed to walk her all the way home and they'd managed to get rid of her parents that she'd let him open her blouse and her bra in the chip-smelly lounge and touch her breasts. He'd been surprised at how much like deflated balloons her nipples felt before they'd gone hard. And almost a year after that, just before he'd been due to go to university, she'd come to the front door with him in her nighty, had lifted it up and shown him everything she had. And you're not having any of it, she said. So much for his dream of marrying her. Don't laugh at me, he said to the wall. I was young and naive and innocent. Poor girl. She went off with someone I knew, and the first child they had was born disabled. So much for the kindness of life. The phone rang again. Yes, he said. Oh, it's you, son. Everything's still okay for tomorrow, the voice said. As far as I know. And the girls are coming too, his son said. Again, as far as I know, they're obviously not as efficient as you and haven't checked in yet. Is it all right to be there by about ten in the morning, his son said. Yeah, that's fine. You know it is. I don't change. I'll get up at the same time tomorrow as I did today and yesterday and the day before, early. Are you all right, his son said. Of course I am, he said, for a fat old man. You're not fat, his son said. That's what your mother always said. I know, his son said. He shrugged. Dad, his son said, yes, still here and I. Are you sure you're fine? Yes, he said, why shouldn't I be? I'm just looking forward to seeing you and your broods all together for once. You still want to come, don't you? Of course I do, Nye said. We all do. We love you. That's good to say. I love you all too. We know, his son said. Is there anything you want us to bring? No, no, unless the children have suddenly got as fussy as their grandmother. They're almost as old as mum was when she married you, dad, his son said. Ah, of course, he said, I forget. No, you don't, his son said. You just choose to pretend to be decrepit. Someone has to. Your fussy grandchildren, then. They're too young to care. See you tomorrow, his son said. See you tomorrow, mate. Take care. And you. Back at the table, he rubbed his hands over the hair he still had left. Miss Rednext, or one column at a time? He went to stand next to the photo. What do you think? He sighed. We've had some good family gatherings these last few years, you know. But of course, you know. You're always here. How could I forget? Hey, the tidying you'd do mental as always. That's what killed you, you know. All this worrying about what people might think about the way you kept house, when all they were interested in was you, nothing else. You're an old fool, and I miss you. No sex. Julie. Well, that was just one of those things. One night of nakedness at university and everything short of actually doing it. Pulling the tortured poet pose. Well, it worked, didn't it? For a day and a bit. When he supposedly already had a girlfriend, but one far away. 
Julie had been quite popular, but one of his friends had got in there first in the end. One of those things. She went and married a very rich man and disappeared from the circle. That's the way the world was. Next, he rubbed his chin. Ah, he couldn't actually remember the names of the next two, so he just made them up. Jenny, the English girl in Germany who'd come to stay at his first lodgings and had been thrown out by the horrible landlady who didn't even provide him with warm water. And then Sam, in London, his flatmate's sister. She'd been very sweet and very Scottish and had asked him not to do anything because she was still a virgin. And that after he'd spent a night in bed with her and her girlfriend. Weird. Oh, and the girl he'd shared a flat with in Germany. He'd got back really late one night and she'd been there drunk and horny and had almost attacked him. He'd been embarrassed and fled into his room. Maybe that should be in the misread column. Perhaps not. She'd been almost naked by the time he'd run off. See, he said to the spirit, I do have a conscience. I'd never take advantage of a woman. Don't laugh. The cat came running in from outside, skidded to a stop in front of a food bowl. Something scare you, he said. Florence meowed. There's still food down and fresh water. Florence jumped onto the table. You're not supposed to do that, he said. She rubbed her ha head against his hand, sniffed at the paper. Yes, he said, it's just an old man's foible. She lay down on the table, stretched out. He stroked her. Anne wouldn't be happy. He never stopped the cat's jumping on the table now, not since she'd died. He kept stroking the cat. I think I've exhausted that column, or I just can't remember that well. No. He put the pen down. It's because that's all there were. He looked at his watch, just gone eleven, on a Friday. Walk or run? Well, old man's run anyway. He shook his head at the cat as she jumped down from the table. I can't be bothered to get changed. I'll just go for a brisk walk. Florence started crunching her food. I'll have to close and lock the door, you know, he said. So maybe today you'll learn to use the cat flap. He unhooked the door, closed and locked it, pulled on a jumper. See you in about an hour. The house had been built in the late 1600s, across a path that led into yards and workshops, a massively thick wall separating it from next door. When they'd had building work done all those decades earlier when they'd moved in, they'd thought it had been built in Victorian times until they'd discovered a wattle and daub wall rising into the loft, much to the delight of the builders working on the house. But they hadn't had enough money to expose it, so just plastered round it, but not until they'd put a time capsule in there with their own memories of just moving in and the memories of two of their friends who'd lived there before. The door slammed closed behind him. It faced north and there was still a chill in the shade. He crossed the road into the sun, walked briskly down the slight incline, arms pumping, and stopped. Damn it! How could you forget her? He turned, stormed back to the house, let himself in and rushed back into the kitchen. Florence was nowhere to be seen. Probably upstairs, asleep, in what had been his eldest daughter's bedroom. He grabbed the paper, wrote another name into the no-sex column. Iris, the half-Irish girl from Liverpool, the lapsed Catholic who told him he fell in love with every woman he kissed. The girl with the wart on her knee, perfect, in her imperfection. The one who'd asked him to sleep with her as they lay naked side by side in his bed. And he'd asked her if it would be forever, and she'd said she couldn't promise. So they hadn't slept with each other. 
He'd felt a real connection to her, so much so that when he'd put her arms around her one night, before that decisive night, he'd thought he'd felt their child inside her already. She'd died, childless and divorced, in a residential home a few years ago, he'd been told by a mutual friend. Such a waste, all she'd wanted was a brood of children. What's left of life? He looked out into the garden at the mementos of the past littering the window sills. Will the kids even bother to go through any of this stuff when I've gone? You always said they wouldn't, didn't you? And we left it for them to sort through anyway. It's not much to show for our existence, is it? He grabbed his old cricket cap, pale with sweat and sun, jammed it onto his head and forced his way out of the door. He'd given up playing too long ago, still missed it, missed all those he'd played with who were no longer there to tease him, and his seriousness, his permanent obsession with his weight, the way he always waited until everyone else had their shirt off so he could try to prove he was the fattest of them all. As he was walking, he put his hand on his stomach, cringed at what he thought was too much of an overhang of his belly over his already tight belt. He'd have to do something about that. He started to walk more quickly. It was warm in the sun and soon he felt sweat trickling down his back and it made him feel live and real and strong. The feeling never lasted for long but it was good for a little while. By the time he got back to the house, by way of the circular route that took him through lanes shaded by overgrown hedgerows and trees along paths that wound their way round fields, past the school and back along the pavements of the village, it was well past noon. As always, he got to the house through the lane at the back, tramping through the garden to the back door of the house, the cedar cladding silver in the sun and the windows gleaming. He unlocked the door and Florence came rushing out to meet him. Use the cat flap, you old idiot, he half shouted. She'd never learn, just like her predecessors had never learned, because they'd just wait until he did what they wanted him to do, just like his wife had, just like the children had. You're such a soft man, he thought. Maybe that's why you've lived so long, because you've bent with every wind, no matter from where it's blown. He poured himself a pint of cold water, carried it out to the garden table, lit another one of his thin cigarettes, leant back in the chair, again moved around to line up with the sun, closed his eyes and thought of nothing. He could never last more than a half cigarette like this, and today was no different. He brought the pad out into the garden, the sun on the white paper momentarily blinding him and refocused on the black ink. He read the list he'd made so far, ticked every name on it. That's it now, isn't it? It had to be. To forget Iris was unforgivable, but she's there now, the last one, like she should be. He grunted, satisfied. More water. He should have been having lunch by now. He'd always had lunch at quarter to one exactly, right from the beginning. He was boring like that, bound to the routine, he thought, gave him freedom in other things. Spend as little time as possible doing those boring chores you have to do, he told his children, over and over again. It gives you more time for the things that are fun. They did learn, but much too late for it to make bringing them up any easier. Had they done it well? Who could tell? The kids seemed happy and successful and they kept coming back. Nice storm, moon, snow. Anne and he must have done something right. He shook his head to clear the sun from his eyes. Miss Red, that was a short list. Joss, 
the hairdresser he met in Germany. They met at a party thrown by mutual friends and started to meet up every week to do the crossword from the New Musical Express, which always arrived a week late in those days. She'd invited him back to the house she was sharing, and they'd sat in her room smoking, talking, eating, drinking. And then she'd asked him if he minded sleeping in the smoky room. For some reason, he'd said he'd rather sleep in a smoke-free room, so he slept alone that night. It wasn't until she'd gone back to England that it crossed his mind she'd been asking him to sleep with her. He smiled at the thought. I told you I was naive, he said to the shimmer of sun next to him. And the time he'd been living in Bromley and went to a party in Camberwell and stayed sober and had been captivated by some slim young thing, eyes dark from tears and lack of sleep. He'd even written a poem about her and how she'd been grieving for her broken love. He just hadn't been brave enough to really talk to her, whatever her name had been, to tell her how beautiful he thought she was. Years later he found out that she'd felt the same about him. What he remembered most about it was the toast and blackcurrant jam he'd had for breakfast the morning after the party, and how he'd not wanted to leave. People separated by unnecessary fears and missing words. But it had all been for the best, he knew that now, and the pain from then was only a fragment of the pain he'd been carrying around with him for over ten years. I don't know their names any more, he said to the cat. I suppose it means they were never that important, just stories to make me feel better about myself. Like the friend of a friend who'd apparently lusted after him at university. I'll give up on that list. He slammed the pad down on the table so hard the cat ran away. Inside he had some lunch. White bread and Frankfurt, as the same as always, the same as he'd been having for almost half his life. He liked it. So there was no, never a reason to change. He left the door open, dumped his board and knife into the sink and walked into what the family had always called the library. A room that had, in fact, been a dining room that he and his wife had shared as an office and which, now he was alone, was his study. Shelves of double-stacked books overwhelmed it, one shelf dedicated to the ones he'd written. He sat down in front of his computer, always on, which stored even more of his words, his thoughts, his soul. Ah, emails from all three girls. They would be there tomorrow too, from all those places they'd made their homes in. Storm from London, moon from New York, snow from God knows where, because she never knew where she was, and neither did he. Odd how they'd all become virtual presences in his life, while nigh the oldest, the only boy, had grown from the early adopter who couldn't be separated from smartphone nor computer nor games console to become, in his middle age, an avid phoner and letter writer. Shopping. He liked nothing more than shopping. He drove into the nearest town, wandered round the supermarket, watched people, listened to their useless conversations, picked out food and drink, vegetables and bread, cooked meats, relishes, all ready for the next day. Is that list really that important, he said to the white noise around him, or does something bored old men do when they can't have the real thing anymore? His vitality stirred and answered the question for him. The fridge, usually austere with bread, frankfurters, butter and cheap beer and wine, was full now, ready for tomorrow. The day was coming to a close. He went for another walk in the blossoming dusk. It was dark when he got home, still restless. The only light on now was that in the kitchen, low above the round table, notepad brilliant white under his black spider's web of writing. 
I need to finish now I've started, he said to the smiling woman in the photo. It won't take long. Claudia, the first name on the sex list, an accidental love, really. Germany again. He'd just been doing a friend a favour. She'd been stalking the friend, so he'd started talking to her. The rest was a blur of juvenile fumblings that ended in a loss of virginity for both of them. She'd moved to England to be with him, by which time he'd already cheated on her twice, once drunkenly, a one-night-only party mistake with Fiona, and then Moira, another Catholic, another virgin, who'd wanted to marry him as soon as the deed was done. Three names, a few words, even fewer memories. Foolish man. He put his head in his hands. And then Moira's friend, Helen, who'd called sport a libido deflector, and who'd made him put his shoes outside the bedroom the one time he'd shared it with her. They'd had fun that summer, but it, that was more about being in London again, more about the sun and the laughter and the obvious lack of attachment. And then, finally, he and Claudia had split up. He'd got the engagement ring back and had started wandering around London every day, notebook in hand, making notes of everything, notes that became extended notes, that became the background to whatever stories he managed to make up and turn into books. Life is just an invention. And then Desdemona. Yes, really. The ballerina turned biologist turned accountant who'd been living in the house in London he'd managed to get a room in through a newspaper ad. They'd started li living together within a week of him moving in. That lasted 18 months and ended in a village in Hertfordshire. Her next boyfriend had tried to run him down outside the pub one night. It had made him laugh and feel so important he escaped back to London where a girl he used to work with consoled him for one blissful weekend. Pippa. She'd been fun too, and had woken him both mornings of that weekend with cups of coffee and plates of toast. Just one more name before the vital one. Jane. They met at some work exhibition and went out for dinner. He didn't know she still had a boyfriend until the boyfriend turned up at her house the next morning. Interesting. Two years on and off, the first nine months of which had been sexless. It had always struck him as odd, especially as there'd never been that much conversation. And then, when it did get serious, when she'd told him she'd move in with him, after they'd been on holiday together, she went off with someone else, who was supposed to be one of his best friends. He'd almost been destroyed by the betrayal. The cats saved him. The black ink glistened under the yellow light. He was alone now. You know what happens now, don't you? He almost couldn't hear himself speak. He scratched her full name in capitals at the bottom of the list, spanning all three columns. Anne Maria. Tears ran down his cheeks as he touched the letters with his fingertips. But he was smiling. We had a good life, didn't we? Despite everything. Pulled together when things were really bad, stayed with each other when everything and everyone fell apart. Loved each other too. Too much sometimes. The shadow nodded and whispered something to him. He walked to the fridge and opened one of the bottles of champagne he'd bought for tomorrow. He opened it slowly and carefully. A gentle pop and fizz. He took two glasses down from the shelf, filled them to the brim, set one down in her place and sat down opposite with his. Chin chin, he said, lifted his glass and looked into her green eyes. It was always you, always. 
Everything else was irrelevant. He understood that now. Had probably always understood it. Those other names, nothing. But Anne and he, they'd met when he'd, been in, when he'd interviewed her for a job. A skinny, little, lost, young thing. They'd skirted around each other for a while until they were free, until he'd lost his facial hair, until he'd understood that waiting for life didn't work, that you had to go after it, grasp it while you could. It all turned around a single moment of realisation. Maybe she'd never been able to articulate it, but that was irrelevant too, because the words don't matter enough. It's what souls do when they intertwine and dance with each other that changes the world. And they had changed the world, each other's world. There was more there than a list would ever hold. He drank the two glasses slowly, thoughtfully, and then a third outside with his last cigarette of the day, just like they used to. Then he turned out the light, went upstairs, and wrapped himself around her nightshirt. Just before dawn, the cat heard him sigh in his sleep. She stepped out of the cat flap, into the first light of day.